Support for Father David Abernethy and his ministry at the Pittsburgh Oratory of St. Philip Neri comes entirely from the donations of community members and listeners like you. The creation of future groups and podcast episodes depends on your commitment and generosity. We humbly ask that you consider a monthly gift of $10 to the Pittsburgh Oratory in support of Father David and his work. To make this or any gift, please visit www.thepittsburghoratory.org, click the Donate button, and write Father David in the notes section. You can also make a recurring or one-time donation directly through Podbean. Your commitment and ministry-sustaining support are greatly appreciated. God bless you, and enjoy the podcast. help us in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Okay, welcome back everybody and to our inaugural meeting of St. John Climacus's Ladder of Divine Ascent. And I'm glad to see you all here. So far we have 79 or 70, yeah, 79 people. Here comes the 80th and 81st person. And so glad to see you all here. Um, this is one of the most extraordinary works, I think, within the spiritual tradition. And uh, I'm not being hyperbolic there. I think uh, over the course of the years, there's something about Climacus, the clarity of his writing and the depth of it, uh, the beauty of it, the aphorisms that he uses, all all the things that help Mm -hmm. us understand uh, the struggle with the passions, how we grow in virtue, how we enter into the life of prayer has such a clarity and beauty to it that I think it's unmatched, except perhaps by two I would think of that off the top of my head and that would be St. John Cassian's conferences and uh, the other would be the ascetical homilies of St. Isaac the Syrian. Uh, Cassian I think there's a real clarity in his thought especially for western thinkers. Uh, Cassian brought the the wisdom of the eastern fathers of Wadi Natrun in Egypt uh, to the west, spent a good dozen years I think or so there and uh, the, the, so they're striking in their beauty and clarity. Uh, Isaac the Syrian, uh, unmatched. Every paragraph uh, is so beautiful and real depth to them. While it's not systematic in the same way uh, that Cassian's conferences are, uh, one could read one paragraph a day and that would be sufficient. Climacus, though, I think... Um, most everyone, I think, who writes about the spiritual life or the ascetical life refers back to him. And uh, we just finished up with St. Theophan the Recluse, who was a Russian priest. And, and uh, most of his thought it was clearly rooted in uh, St. John Climacus's Ladder of Divine Ascent. And uh, so in some ways, it was a good preparation for us. So I think we'll see uh, images of St. Theophan in Climacus, and, uh, but he's challenging, no doubt about it, and we're going to have to work a little bit harder. Uh, Theophan was writing for a young woman who was entering into the spiritual life and was able to distill it with great beauty and uh, also a kind of uh, straightforwardness and simplicity for her without watering down the tradition. Uh, Climacus was writing for monks at the request of a a neighboring abbot from a a monastery that was close to his own. 
And so I was writing for monks in particular who had already embraced the life, uh, but in particular to address how one deals with the passion, struggles with them, what are the remedies for them, and also how one grows in virtue, uh, and then also the development of the life of prayer. And uh, we'll see reference directly in his writings to the, the Jesus prayer and the practice of it as well. Uh, John lived in the, the 6th and 7th century, and uh, uh, we don't know a whole lot or a great deal of his history. And as you, you'll see in the, the uh, handout that I sent all of you, and that's available in the chat here, the PDF of it from Callistus Ware, uh, it's thought that he might have been a disciple of St. Gregory Nazianzen. What we do know is that he entered into the monastic life very early at the age of 16. And he comes under the tutelage of a monk named Martyrius and uh, lives with him is in uh, obedience for a number of years. It's interesting, I found a little bit of a variance there uh, in the history. Callistus Ware uh, had it for a shorter period of time that he lived with Martyrius and then before entering into the life of solitude. Uh, living as uh, an anchorite. And uh, uh, this version in the introduction refers to it as um, something like 19 years with Martyrize and before entering into the solitude about, into great solitude about f five miles or so from the main monastery at the foot of, of Mount Sinai, uh, which would have placed him at age 35. Uh, some, and Calistus Ware says that it was four years and then entered into solitude for 40 years. And so in either case, it's a rather impressive and humbling thing to think about that uh, he entered so young. And uh, there's a little story you'll see in the introduction that uh, Martyrius and John come across uh, another monk who prophesies that he eventually will be abbot of the monastery of, of St. Catherine, which indeed did happen. And in fact, uh, washes the feet of John, this young young boy of 16, uh, because of that fact. And uh, so there was something about John very early on, blessed and lived a grace-filled life and uh, was a whole, very holy figure. And under the guidance of Martyr Ice, uh, excelled in the spiritual life. And then eventually, as I mentioned, enters into a life of radical solitude in a cave for 40 years. And uh, he's also known as St. John the Scholastic, Climacus is, simply means ladder, uh, taken from the, his main work, The Ladder of Divine Ascent. So John Climacus, John of the Ladder, but John, also John the Scholastic, uh, not Scholastic as we would know in, in the, the West. He wasn't a Thomist. Uh, John the Scholastic, because he knew was so brilliant in his understanding of the fathers and so well-read and has had a great capacity uh, to articulate their teachings, and so also referred under this title. Um, and, but I'm not going to spend uh, too much time uh, outlining the, the, the basics of John's thought or even going into the history of his life. Um, I think over the course of time, we'll circle back to it and some of the things that we've talked about uh, in many ways in past groups as well. And if you have any questions, certainly as we make our way through it, don't hesitate to stop me uh, for some clarification. Uh, but I'd rather us jump right into the text and then pull things out as necessary. 
I always find that it's the best way to start a group rather than going through a lengthy hour long introduction, which anybody could read in the uh, at the beginning of the book and holding off. I'd like to jump right into the text itself with step number one on renunciation of the world. And to be honest with you, I think we see the most of John's character, uh, something of his personality, his sense of humor, uh, his brilliance in, in his writing. Uh, well, so while we don't know very much about his personal history, there's a lot of John that comes through in his writing, we'll find. Uh, he does have a sense of humor. The images that he uses, are, I think, are just brilliant in terms of illustrating the spiritual life. Uh, but we have to prepare ourselves, and I want you to brace yourselves for what is to come. Uh, he's writing about the ascetical life and the struggle with the passions. And... Uh, and he's writing for monks, and so he's often very direct. Some of the images, especially when we get uh, to the passages on penitence and obedience, uh, people will find it very challenging. And again, you know, I don't want you to hesitate in putting forward any questions or comments uh, about any part of the text. We're not in a rush. And so expect that it'll probably take us two, three years probably to get through this text. And uh, but that's okay with me. I think uh, we like to take our time and see this as a kind of group Lexio Divina, a prayerful contemplative reading of the text. And, uh, and hopefully we'll find it as rich as everything else that we've looked at in the past. This is my first time actually being able to go through the entire text verbatim with a group. I always in the past had to work with the academic year, uh, having worked with students here at the University of Pittsburgh and Carnegie Mellon. And so I faced profound limitations. I had to edit the text, type out the sections that I wanted to review with the group, write up a little synopsis of, uh, of each section. Uh, but it really forced me to cut out uh, many, uh, many of the illustrative examples that John uh, used, which were some of the most fascinating parts of the book, to be honest with you. So it's a privilege, I think, for us to be able to go through it verbatim, uh, to hear it in its entirety. Uh, this is also my first time with this translation. I've always used the Paulus Press version in the past, and I've heard uh, from many people that they prefer this uh, translation, that it's uh, the far, far more accurate translation. And so I'm interested to, to compare the two after having the read the, the other one so many times in the past. Uh, just for those who are new, we'll, we'll take a paragraph or so at a time. Then I'll open it up for comments and questions. Uh, there's a way to virtually raise your hand down in the bottom of your computer. Uh, if, you have a, if you want to give me a signal, if you can't get that to work, just wave at me and uh, I'll answer your question. Uh, you'll have to unmute yourself, though, when it comes time to ask your questions. All right. There's also a chat section. So if you have anything in addition that you just want to offer the group without bringing it up, uh, verbally, feel free to do that as well. Okay, so we're picking up tonight on page 53 of the text, and this will be the first step. And the first three really have to do with uh, separation from, from the world. And, uh, and so that'll be the fundamental theme here for us this evening. Let's see. So initial conversion and what that looks like 
for a, an individual, a break with the world. So uh, a renunciation that is both outward and inward. And it's curious, some of the images of the latter, some of the icons that have been produced over the year often will have a monk sitting on the bottom rung, not facing upwards, but looking outwards, contemplating whether or not he is willing to take the journey uh, ahead of him. And it's a good thing. I mean, to count the cost we hear within the scriptures, uh, to make sure that you're willing uh, to make the sacrifices necessary before entering upon the journey. And uh, so we'll begin here with the section one on 50, again, 53. Our God and King is good, transcendently good and all good. It is the best to begin with God in writing to the servants of, of God. With the rational beings created by him and honored with the dignity of free will, some are his friends, others are his true servants, some are worthless, some are completely estranged from God, and others, though feeble creatures, are his opponents. So he begins where we would all want to, with God himself, and we'll see this further on in the step, uh, that we believe in a revealed religion. God has made himself manifest to us, revealed himself to us in his son. And, uh, and so we always begin with orthodoxy. And uh, I think that might be a good place for us just to pause for a, sec uh, for a second. Orthodoxy, I think, is often thought of as right belief, right teaching. And that would be accurate, of course. And I think this is what John would have in mind that we believe in the Most Holy Trinity. Uh, we believe what has been revealed to us in God's Son uh, uh, and all that that entails within the Gospels. But orthodoxy also means right glory, doxa in terms of glory. And this also John would have in mind. So right glory in the sense of living the life that we've been called to, the life of grace. And I think in the West, we have the tendency to intellectualize things. And so when we think of orthodoxy, we think of you know, various creedal statements, theological views, and understandings of the faith. And again, that would be accurate, but it would also be very limited uh, in the sense of our understanding of who we are as human beings, in terms of what has been revealed to us in and through Christ, what God has called us to be in and through our baptism, a share in his glory, a share in his own life. And uh, I think our vision becomes very myopic when we don't have this understanding of orthodoxy. And it, it, we have that tendency to over-intellectualize things and lose sight of the relational aspect of our faith, that we are called to enter into, by grace, this radical intimacy with the Most Holy Trinity through our participation in the life of Christ and our participation uh, in the life of the sacraments. And by our embrace of the grace of God, uh, to participate in the very glory of God through the ascetical life uh, in the sense of turning away from our passions, uh, disordered desires, and directing those toward God, uh, living a life that is directed toward him. So living a life of fundamentally of repentance, a constant turning toward God. So not just turning away from a particular sin, uh, but living a life that is a constant movement toward him. And this is what we will pick up, uh, especially within in Climacus, as we make our way through it. Uh, you also see that he isn't overly specific. 
in his writing in detail. He's not laying out a map for people here uh, that is overly detailed about the various aspects of the monastic life or even the Christian life as a whole. You know, what he's focused on most is the interior life, the struggle with the passions, uh, overcoming them in order that, again, we might uh, embrace the grace of God fully, that there would be no impediment to our loving God and living for him. And, uh, you know, there's a mystery that is part of every person. And so I think what we find in some of the Eastern writers is a hesitancy to become overly specific about ways of praying, about ways of engaging in certain practices. They mention them all and the, the essential aspect that they have for the, the spiritual life and the ascetical life, but you aren't going to find a laid out role here, in other words. And uh, so John will leave us a lot of room to talk about this and what it means for us in our day-to-day our -day life. So uh, of the rational beings created by him and honored with the dignity of free will, some are his friends. And so John emphasizes from the get-go here that we are created in the image and likeness of God, uh, but we are also created with freedom. And so God offers us everything the fullness of the life of grace, but nonetheless, there is a human element in it. And so even though our emphasis would be on the grace of God, in our freedom, this grace is something that has to be embraced. And so John makes the simple distinction for us. There are those who are the friends of God, who embrace that dignity in all of its fullness and embrace it in such a way that it leads them to obedience, to embrace the path that God has set out before, before them. Uh, others are his true servants, uh, and he'll break this down a little bit uh, further on. Uh, so, but those, and those who do his will, uh, but perhaps not perfectly, there are some are worthless, and so some are completely estranged from God, and others, the feeble creatures, are opponents. So, various levels of use or misuse of that freedom, and then even absurdity that despite one's feebleness, that one and their freedom would seek to set themselves in opposition uh, to God, to make themselves their, his opponents. By friends of God, dear and holy father, we, simp we simple people mean, properly speaking, those noetic and incorporeal beings which, are surround, which surround God. So all the angels, all the saints who have been transformed by the grace of God, who gaze upon the face of God, uh, who are pure of heart, if you will, that nothing impedes that vision of God for them. Uh, by true servants of God, we mean all those who tirelessly and unremittingly do and have done his will. And so those who live in obedience, who set aside their own will, who are obedient to his commandments and have made that the focus and focal point of their lives. Uh, by worthless servants, we mean those who think of themselves as having been granted baptism, but have not faithfully kept the vows they made to God. So Christians only in name, who have received the gift, but uh, have not embraced it and in this sense, scorn it. And uh, by those estranged from God and alienated from him, we mean those who are unbelievers and heretics. 
Finally, the enemies of God are those who have not only evaded and rejected the Lord's commandments themselves, but who also wage bitter war on those fulfilling it. So estranged, you know, those who are unbelievers or heretics, those who have really moved away from God and what he has revealed, and so have moved away from the truth in a fundamental way, and so have separated themselves in this fashion, and then certainly the enemies of God, those who have rejected him wholeheartedly and even set themselves against those who've embraced the, the grace of God and the gospel in its fullness. And so it might seem like a, a cold paragraph to begin with, or uh, not much that is exciting or new to us there. But I, I think what John is trying to do is create a frame for us here as we're thinking about uh, this kind of detachment from the world and giving oneself over fully to God and a way to examine ourselves as we begin the journey. Where do we lie in this spectrum? And how have we embraced the gospel in our lives or the grace of God in our lives or not? And uh, we can't be under any illusions. One can't begin this path except in the spirit of humility you know, truthful, truthful living, looking at ourselves honestly, and uh, in, in light of the gospel, but also in the light of Christ himself, the cross, in the light of the saints. Have we really been living this life? Where are the ways that we need uh, to embrace that life more fully? Where is it that we struggle? If this is what John is going to be uh, laying out before us in the steps to come, it's important for us to be honest with ourselves from, from the beginning. And it's not like we're going to have a choice anyways as we go through this. Uh, John has a piercing vision, and so there's nowhere, nowhere to hide. And so don't, don't expect that we'll be able to do that too easily. Okay, any comments or questions so far? Okay, number two. Each of the classes mentioned above might well have a special treatise devoted to it. But for simple folk like us, it would not be profitable at this point to enter into such lengthy investigations. Come then in unquestioning obedience, let us stretch out our unworthy hand to the true servants of God, who devoutly compel us and in their faith constrain us by their commands. Let us write this treatise with a pen taken from their knowledge and dipped in the ink of humility, which is both dark yet radiant. Then let us apply it to the smooth white paper of their hearts, or rather rest it on the tablets of the spirit. And let us inscribe the divine words, or rather sow the seeds. And let us begin like this. So we, we look to those who live in this complete obedience to God, where there is no impediment whatsoever. And, uh, and we look to them uh, as the standard for ourselves and in which to examine ourselves. And we, we do it with a kind of unquestioning obedience. Obedience, humility, we will see are two of the fundamental virtues for John and those to which he dedicates a great deal of time within the book. Um, where one is imitating Christ in the fullest capacity. He who humbled himself, uh, taking on our lowly flesh, became obedient, taking the form of a slave, obedient even unto death. 
And so the path for us, if it is to be a Christ-like path, is, is to imitate him uh, in his obedience and humility. And uh, we are to let this be written upon our hearts. And so John makes it very clear you know, he's not engaging and he's not, not writing a theological treatise here, and we can't treat it in this way. Uh, he acknowledges the importance of it, that our practice of the faith is rooted in what has been revealed to us, but we are not to approach his writing as a theological text. It's a, an ascetical writing and pastoral in the sense of, you know, John shepherding us as it were, in the spiritual life and the struggle for purity of heart as a fellow struggler, if you will. And uh, so he's not going to spend the time in analyzing the distinctions that he makes. Again, he simply offers it to us as a frame into which, uh, in which we can understand what he's going to be writing about here in the future. Our fundamental attitude is simply to be that of, of obedience and humility. The, this is how we are to listen to what is to come uh, and uh, in such a way that we allow to be written deeply within our hearts, etched upon our hearts. Ambrose Little. Yeah. Hey, for the truly simple among us, mm -hmm. he uses the word noetic quite freely. Yes. Can you comment on that <laughs> meaning of that? Yes. Uh, the... When the, the, the Greek fathers, or when the Eastern fathers describe in Greek the, uh, so the faculties of the soul or their anthropology, their understanding of the human person, uh, we, we see, and we have seen in other texts, it often described or defined as intellect. Uh, and uh, the problem that we have in the West is that we often think of that as reason, our capacity for reason. And it doesn't really capture the essence of the word noose, uh, which would be more eye of the heart or eye of the soul that is to be purified through the ascetical life. Uh, Blessed are the pure of heart, they shall see God. And so uh, we see in Cassian the immediate aim of the spiritual life being purity of heart, purifying the heart. This is the immediate goal that guides us along the spiritual life. And so those who have a noetic uh, vision of things, where was that again? Uh, he was talking about beings, I guess the angels and, and that's the right. creatures. That's right. Uh, is that in the first paragraph? Yeah, I'm a little slow to comment on it, sorry. Okay. So those are noetic beings are those who have no impediment in the, in the sense of the impurity that we often will struggle with through the disorder of our, that comes through our passions or our disordered desires. And so those who live the angelic life, as it were, uh, who have, been, uh, have embraced the gospel in obedience, have imitated Christ, who've engaged in the ascetical life, the deep life of un unceasing prayer, have over the course of time purified their heart and so they become noetic creatures, those who through the noose are able to comprehend divine things and to comprehend God in and through the gift of, of faith. And, uh, and so this is, the, I think this is the most challenging thing uh, for those in the West to unpack in terms of understanding, again, the anthropology of the Eastern fathers. 
because uh, again, we often have a tendency to approach things in a rationalistic fashion and to, we want to uh, uh, dissect it, pull it apart. And I think we find a much different approach among the Eastern fathers, the, one that's rooted more uh, in experience. And uh, so it's the experience of the self in and through the spiritual life that has guided their understanding of the human person that has shaped their anthropology. And so we have to do engage in the labor of understanding that. Uh, otherwise, we're going to find ourselves at times walking in the dark. And so again and again, as we go through the text, we'll have to unpack this again and again and, and uh and grow in an understanding of it. And to be honest with it, it took me 25 years of grappling with it to, to gain a clearer sense of what they were talking about. A good work to read would be uh, Herothios Vlako's work, Orthodox Psychotherapy. Uh, I think that was the place where I, I first came to grasp with a greater fullness the, the meaning of, of noose. Uh, also, I think uh, in the back of the Philokalia, the first volume, the glossary, does a very good job, at least in terms of breaking down the terminology for us. And so if you have the Philokalia, that would be a good resource as well. And in fact, maybe we'll send that out as a PDF, I think for people to have, because I think it's a great resource to have as we go through a, a text like this. So the long and short of it is a, a sort of a rambling way of answering your question, but this is what he would mean by those noetic creatures. You know, those you. who have this particular kind of vision. Jim Maholland. Hi. Um, yeah, I just wanted to comment on, the, on these last few sentences of the second paragraph. Uh, you were talking about how we tend to uh, stay kind of uh, in the intellectual plane. And I just, as you read this, I just, it like touched my heart. Mm -hmm. It was very poetic. And, um, you know, I, I was moved by it and I felt like uh, it just opened my heart. I thought it was really interesting. Um, I tend to focus more on the experiential kind of aspects of things rather than the intellectual. So that's kind of my, where I live. So um, I'm not surprised that that would be your ex experience. And uh, some of the Eastern fathers say, you know, before one becomes a, a Christian, one has to be, become a poet. Uh, that one has to be able to view the world and view experience in a particular kind of way, not in the sense of dissecting it as we tend to do, but this capacity to comprehend it in a larger way that is only captured then, uh, as you said, in this, this kind of language that speaks to the heart. And... Uh, for the Eastern Fathers, it is always this experiential knowledge that is, is guiding one, that it isn't through the mind alone, because eventually the faculty of, of our, our reason fails us, imagination fails us, that it is faith, this uh, dark, obscure knowing, this comprehending of divine truths uh, that really guides us. And for them, I think, and we've talked about this in some other groups, uh, the uh, like a school of theolo theology, going and getting a, an MA or a PhD in theology uh, would make no sense to them outside of living the ascetical life and the formation of the mind and the heart. In fact, it would be dangerous to do so. 
that when we are talking about divine things and, and life in Christ, uh, that purity of heart, depth of prayer, obedience, all of these things are most essential. Uh, and outside of that, one ends up doing what they would describe as demonic theology. One is not being guided by the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, but just the opposite. You know, a heart that is driven and guided by the passions is always going to be guided into greater and greater darkness. And, uh, and so the language that they use is often very poetic. And I think that's often surprising to people when they read the Desert Fathers, because I think often there's this perception of them as having this negative anthropology, this negative view of the human person. And I think what you discover when you immerse yourself in the writings of the fathers is this really high view of, of the human person. Uh, very honest view in terms of how sin affects us. But uh, I think they have a very high view of what we are called to in and through our baptism and our participation in the, the life of grace. And uh, that goes far beyond, I think, what we often uh, find with it within the in the West or in non-ascetical writings, and uh, I think when we're only looking at things through our, the lens of our intellect, it's always going to be very limited and obscured. And you can see it in certain texts. I mean, they become more and more obscure, more and more difficult to read, and and more and more disconnected from experience. And uh, and so, the, you know, in some of the groups we've talked about, you know, uh, the reform of seminary life. When I look back at seminary life, there was very little to none of this. You know, there, there was classes in scripture, theology, church history, liturgy, all of these things, but uh, not the emphasis on the ascetical life that was often pushed out at the margins and you'd find it in some courses on patristics, but never pursuing it in the sense of reading through the, the, the fathers uh, with depth and seeking to imitate them in the pursuit of purity of heart. And so even though we have this rich tradition accessible to us, you know, I think we are often formed outside of it. And so we don't have to look very far, I think, for the distortions that we, for the reason for the distortions in uh, how Christians are living their life today and all, some of the, the very dark things that we find going on within the life of the church too, and even the ineffectiveness in evangelizing. You know, it's often been said, you can't give what you don't have. And so if you're not rooted in, uh, if your life isn't rooted in Christ, what is it that you're proclaiming to the world, you know? And, you know, is it that you're just a charismatic figure? You're good at public speaking and you can speak about spiritual things, but it's never really going to penetrate to the depths of the hearts of your hearers. And so an aged, you know, monk who's lived the life for 50 years, his simple words might pierce to the depths of a person's religiosity and to the depths of their heart in a far more profound way than someone who's very articulate, but whose thoughts are not rooted in experience, but simply rest within the mind. And so there's part of us that has to switch gears when we approach the fathers. And especially when we approach reading John Climacus, because he's 
you know, he's telling us up front, this is not a theological treatise. This is about how you enter into the spiritual battle and struggle with the passions in order that you can enter into this intimate relationship with God. And uh, we're woefully unprepared, I think, to deal with what many people are experiencing within the world and the grip that the passions have uh, upon them. And so you find many confessors, spiritual directors completely disconnected from the spiritual tradition or picking from various elements of it and from various periods of time, but not being rooted in any consistent understanding, consistent anthropology or psychology uh, of the fathers. And, uh, and I think if I've gravitated in my study to, this, uh, to the Eastern fathers, it's for that reason. There's a kind of homogeneity there over the course of time, a clarity of thought and line of thought throughout the centuries that is beautiful in my mind, and that is rooted in the passing on of this experiential knowledge and formation from one generation to another. And uh, uh, in, in the West, I think in large part, and we've lost connection with that. Uh, and so even this is, you know, our patrimony, this is part of our heritage. Uh, many people have never even heard of John Climacus. Uh, I visited a monastery to give a retreat uh, a couple of years ago, and they had all heard of John Cassian because he was a Western monk, and they knew of his conferences. Uh, but I went there a second time to do a retreat on Climacus, and not one of them had read, had read his work. And uh, it's not a critique, but I, I think, again, it's you know, there, there's this disconnect from the fuller tradition. So even though Cassian was speaking about the wisdom of these Eastern fathers, in large part, they've been neglected or they've just been inaccessible to us in the West because we don't speak the language. Uh, just one little point of trivia. Uh, I don't know if you picked up in your, your reading, if you read the introduction at all, but one of the first books to come to the new world uh, was the Ladder of Divine Ascent, translated into Spanish. And so it's a curious thing that here we are reading, you know, one of the first spiritual treatises that, you know, came to this country. And uh, so it's, it's a beautiful thing. And uh, I think it's going to bear great fruit for everyone to be able to go through this in its entirety. All right. Any other thoughts before we move on? Okay. Yes, Emil. I thought the image was really interesting of taking the pen taken from their knowledge, dimmed in the ink of humility, and then applying it to the smooth white paper of their hearts. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because reflecting on that, I would almost think that I'm trying to write on my own heart. And then he says, writing the divine words, or rather sow the seeds. So it's almost, I, I, I've just, it seems as though I, I need to sit with that image. And then briefly, it makes me think of, I have a little plot of land that I'm trying to work with, and it's composed of real heavy clay. And the thing about heavy clay is that it's exceptionally nutritionally dense, mm -hmm. but it requires 
uh, a lot of work to unlock those nutrients in uh-huh. order to, so, yeah. Right. Yeah, we, again, we, you're right. We shouldn't pass over that image too quickly. And thinking about what it is that takes place when we're reading the, the, the writings of the fathers and when we're looking at their life, their lives, and uh, what is really taking place there. And when, especially when he mentions, as you said, on the smooth white paper of their hearts, um, you know, a big part of the spiritual life uh, at this time was the re- revelation of one's thoughts to one's elders. And in doing so, the, the truth of them would be, be made manifest, that the bringing of the thoughts to light would allow them to be seen for what they are, but also would reveal the passions that exist within. And it's funny, modern psychotherapy picked up on that. You know, uh, Sigmund Freud, in particular, with uh, psychoanalysis and uh, free association, and uh, that the analyst sits behind the analysand, and analysand is lying on the couch, and so they're, they're not even looking at each other. And there's a revelation of every thought, every feeling, every image that comes to mind. And it's as though it's being projected up onto a blank screen, uh, not being able to see the analyst reaction to that, or and even having the analyst suspend judgment and simply have this suspended uh, attention and, and listening to what the analysand is saying allows him to listen on a deeper level, to pick up on the internal narrative of the one who's on the couch. And it's a long process and there's a discipline to it. And, but it's this projection of that internal world up onto the screen that allows for greater insight into what's the workings of the mind and the heart to emerge over the course of time. You begin to pick up on the internal narrative that, that exists from multiple perspectives. And in and through this, and in and through analyzing it and discussing it over the course of years, uh, a deeper healing can begin to emerge. And, but I think we see this in its most profound form within the, the fathers themselves and the revelation of the thoughts of their disciples to them. Uh, you know, it was a similar thing was taking place there that these, uh, elders who have this experiential knowledge of God, but also of the struggle in the spiritual life and hearing their disciples' thoughts could apply the healing balm that was needed over the course of time as they began to understand uh, what was going on within the heart of those that were in their hearts of those that were in their charge. And they don't do that in uh, a kind of distant way uh, as perhaps an analyst would. Uh, I think one who's responsible for shepherding a soul or having the care of a soul recognizes a radical solidarity that exists there. And there's a a love that binds there that allows the elder to enter into the experience and also to have this deep knowledge of the struggle of the other in order to be able to offer true healing. And so it's not outside of the context of a relationship of love, both with God, but the elder's love of the one in his charge, that healing takes place. You know, so it's not just an intellectual analysis or even an emotional analysis of what's going on with the individual. 
it's uh, an, a comprehension in and through faith of what's going on in the heart of the other uh, that takes place over time, seen in faith and comprehended in love, and then healing can take place through the counsel of an elder. And it's for this reason that they never would suggest entering into the solitary life uh, that we will even hear from John that it's really in the monastery that one learns the ABCs, not only of the monastic life, but of the spiritual life as a whole. Where does one learn obedience other than being under an abbot or under uh, a novice master or someone who has responsibility for you? That if you fall into darkness in a life of solitude, you're going to be in a world of hurt. There's no one to pick you up. And, uh, and so they always had this great care of not, you know, moving too quickly into that, that it's only over the course of years. And so even John Climacus was under the guidance of Martyrias, uh, the author here thinks for, I think it was 19 years. And uh, before then embracing the life of the solitary life for 40 after that. And then he becomes abbot of St. Catherine's Monastery. Uh, so it's, again, it's a humbling thing, you know, that he really, you know, he was no slouch, as it were, John was no slouch. And, uh, <clears throat> but, you know, getting back uh, to what we were talking about, you know, this writing upon the hearts, you know, it's for us as individuals and in receiving the counsel of the elders and, and their wisdom. But I, I think that goes both ways, that there is a writing on the heart of the individual who is the elder and offering guidance that takes place as well. They're not abstracted from the one who's in their care. And any priest, I think, who hears a great deal of confessions or who does spiritual direction understands that. You know, it's not in a detached way that one engages in that process. And, uh, but rather with the full self engaged in that, especially in this, in the sacrament of confession. And, uh, and so I think what is being put forward here is already in the second paragraph is something of uh, this intimacy, but also how deeply uh, this wisdom is to be written upon the heart. Okay, let's move on to number three here. God belongs to all free beings. He is the life of all, the salvation of, of all, faithful and unfaithful, just and unjust, pious and impious, passionate and dispassionate, monks and laymen, wise and simple, healthy and sick, young and old. Just as the effusion of light, the sight of the sun, and the changes of the seasons are, all, are for all alike. For there is no respect of persons with God. Now, this is an important point, and we've talked about this in other groups as well. You know that there is, uh, you know, God is the God of all that is, is being put forward here. But it also uh, <clears throat> communicates to us a kind of radical solidarity that exists between us. You know that, especially in Christ, that there has been a breakdown of all division that we could take hold of to separate ourselves from others. 
And so we can never look upon another person uh, from the moment that we become Christian, except with love. We can never look upon another person with contempt or scorn, with harsh judgment, condescension, but rather with, with the love of Christ, the desire to lift them up, the desire for their salvation and healing as we would desire our own. And, and if we are also to imitate what we, we see in God's creation, you know, that he is the God of all those free beings, all those he's created in his image and likeness, then we are, are, are not to be a respecter of persons in that regard in the, in the sense of making distinctions based upon accidental qualities. The fact that a person is made in the image and likeness of God should communicate to us their essential dignity and how it is that we are to look upon them. And we often show great comfort in categorizing people in one form or another, whether it's simply in our own mind or whether or not we do this verbally with each other. And we cannot allow ourselves that luxury. All that the Christian allowed is, to do, is allowed to do is to love and love unconditionally. Anthony, and then Ren. Okay, it seems that we have a long, long tradition in the West of saying we are not free. And that really hampers our understanding of these spiritual texts. I'm going backwards. There's Curly Howard who lampoons the, the scientific determinism. I'm a victim of circumstance. <laughs> we, have, we have the reformers, so to speak. John Calvin and Martin Luther, whose magnum opus, bondage of the will. Uh, before them, I, I believe they're connected. The Cathars. You are not free. You're bound up. You, you're, a, you're a duality, and you have to shed off your flesh to be free. And before them, there was the Paulicians and the Bojamils in, in, in uh, Armenia and Bosnia. It's like so much of our history is bound up in denying this. You are not free. And I guess that also says you can't love, if I understand St. Right. John correctly. That's right. Brilliant. Wonderful comments. And I think you're absolutely right. And I think it does distort our, our vision of Christianity, but more importantly, how we, we live it out. You know, I, I think often, even in our struggle with the passions, we lose sight of that essential truth about who we are. And we see ourselves as victims, uh, rather than, as, as you said, you know, beings that are created free in the image and likeness of God, but also aided by his grace. And, you know, when we set aside this sense of freedom, as you describe it, then we see ourselves as, as victims of these realities. And so pulled to and fro and uh, lacking then, we begin to lack a, a sense of hope about our life and the struggle if we lose sight of that. And so people often describe themselves as falling into sin. Or, you know, and uh, or being in the grip of sin and even the language of addiction, I think, is being broadened out uh, in such a way now uh, that it touches upon so many things, including things in the spiritual life that the fathers would have described as passion, sin that has become habitual, the following of one's desire or distorted desires. Uh, to the point that uh, we lose, we do lose that freedom, 
but we are responsible for that loss because we've made certain choices in our, our lives to give ourselves over to those things that pull us away from God. And we find ourselves more and more in the grip of them. That there is a fundamental choice at certain points of our life to turn away from the grace of God and the life that he's called us to. And it's only, I think, when we uh, reinsert this vision that John is talking about here about our essential freedom that then things come back into focus again. That we are, are called to, to this life in Christ and we have to use that freedom to offer a yes, even in our poverty, uh, to call out to God out of that poverty and the, the misery that often goes along with it, seeking his aid. Uh, because other words, otherwise, we're always going to see those realities as stronger than God and stronger than the grace of God and his will uh, to bring about our salvation and his will to bring about our, our healing. And so, as Anthony was saying here, you know, if we have to hold on to this desperately, uh, otherwise we, we lose something of our understanding of the dignity of the human person. And so our understanding of that relationship with God and the spiritual life becomes radically distorted as well. Ryan Witter. Hey, um, I was just thinking, I was really struck by the examples he gave or the, the way he divided people mm -hmm. when he says that, um, that God is the life of all and the salvation of all. Because I think when we think there's no, um, God shows no partiality, um, often our minds probably go to the passages from the New Testament where we're talking about God showing no partiality when it comes to like wealth or poverty or age or ability. And like, there's all of these dichotomies, but to affirm right off the bat, like within the first page, that God is the life and the salvation of the faithful and the unfaithful, the just and the unjust, the pious as well as the impious and the passionate as well as the dispassionate. Like those are really, um, there's something really beautiful and like merciful about that. This sort of gives you hope right off the bat that he's immediately affirming the, you know, radical centrality of God in the life of even like the most impious, unjust, passionate, you know, unfaithful person. And uh, yeah, it's sort of like a little twist on the typical no partiality, but very like merciful. That's right. And, you know, I think. It, it captures for us something of the freedom of God and the action of God, too, in terms of his providence, his providence in our, our life, that he is free to act in such a way to bring about our salvation, even if it's up, turning upside down our perception of reality and our perception of him and of the church and the action of his spirit in our life. And we talked about this in one of the other groups uh, uh, when we were talking about the, uh, you know, the unattached exorcist that the apostles wanted to control. He's not one of us. And we tried to order him to cease and desist. Stop what you're doing right now. And Christ has to tell him, you know, he who is not against us is with us. 
And we, we have this tendency to want to categorize, to want to compartmentalize, to narrow our vision in such a way because it gives us the illusion of having a kind of control over our life and uh, an illusion of kind of a perception of the, even the mysteries of God himself and the action of God in people's lives. And so anything that sort of steps outside of those lines for us, outside of those boundaries, we become very uncomfortable. And uh, I think when we give ourselves over to that uh, view, view of things, again, our, our view of God becomes very small and our view of life, the mystery of the human person, and, uh, and, and ultimately becomes very joyless. And, and I, I would give, even go a step further than that. You know, the, there's a loss of hope altogether. Because I think when we narrow our vision of the action of God within our life and within the world, you know, I think our, our hope is going to break down very quickly. Because we cannot see the, the manner in which God acts in his love in people's lives. And so the moment that we begin to undergo certain trials, when our life seems to be turned upside down, uh, we begin to question the love of God and the providence of God, you know, when it no longer fits in with our understanding, our reading of the gospel, you know, what kind of God does this or what kind of God allows this to take place in my life? Or why would God give me this kind of cross? you know, he couldn't possibly do that. I'm much more prepared to carry another than the one that he's given me. And so when we give up this vision of our own freedom, we also, I think, are, are really trying to tie the hands of God too, to make God one that we can control. And, and uh, we're much more comfortable, I think, with this kind of rationalized image of God in, in our life where he's pushed out to the margins, you know, where we have a kind of security uh, with this notion of God being present in our life. And, and we lose sight of the scriptures that tell us it's, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the loving God or the living God that, and to really uh, cast ourselves in obedience and trust into his hands and allow him to form and shape our life as he will, as he wills. It's a good point. Okay. So that brings us to the end of the hour, believe it or not. We made it through a full three paragraphs. And so you have a sense of how long this is going to take us. But it, it's important. And I think even here we moved pretty quickly tonight, uh, probably because it's the first night and I'm excited. But uh, it is important that we slow things down and allow ourselves to, to unpack it and read it deeply. Uh, because otherwise we're not going to take anything away from it. You know, we, we just don't want to read this for the sake of reading it and, and knowing what John says about these things, but really seeking to embrace it. And these are pretty essential ideas, again, that are going to frame our reading of the text and our understanding of the ascetic life. You know, is it, you know, just a test of endurance you know, are we pushing ourselves? Are we punishing ourselves? Or do we see our ascetic, asceticism as rooted in this freedom and driven by our desire and love for God? And the way that we view that changes everything. It shapes everything. And it's going to shape how we read the rest of the book.
Okay. So thank you everybody for being patient with that. You know, I, I think that was uh, a long hour for just three paragraphs, but uh, I think it'll serve us well as we move ahead. Okay. So there are 93 here tonight, but don't hesitate uh, to uh, tell others about it. We'll try to bump up how many people can be a part of the group. And for all those who are new here too, I don't want you to hesitate uh, to make a comment or to break in with a question. It's always what has made the group so rich. You know, I've read the book over and over again for the last 30 years, but it's always in and through this group that there are aspects of it that come forward that I haven't considered or thought about. And it's only been through these discussions that the full richness of the text begins to emerge. And uh, so never hesitate to, to bring something forward or, or to contact me outside of the group too. I'm always glad to talk about it. All right. Okay. Ren, do we have anything to tell them? The link will be going out every week. So on It'll the always be the same. Always be the I, same. You know, so like after the first time when my browser memorizes the link, I probably never open an email ever again. So not to mention, I do try to make like a, you know, I try to make like a rebrand it so that it's something you can remember, even if you're not at your home computer. So um, everything, everything uh, Philoclea ever does will be the pghco.org forward dash something. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so this one's Clamacus, and that's pretty simple. So it'll always be that. And if you're not at home on your computer, you can also connect via your phone. So that's right. And feel free to share the link with people that you feel think would enjoy the group. And also, if you can't make it every week, don't worry about. It. That's what the podcasts are for. And uh, we're all, I'm always glad to see you here though and so feel free to jump in as you can i know for those who are from the eastern rites lent can be difficult uh because of the liturgy of the pre-sanctified and so uh, if you can't make it every week again don't worry about it we're, we're going to be going long past lent okay so when we close as always with the our father in the name of the father and of the son of the holy spirit amen our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. And I'm going to God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks. Be to God. God. Thank you all. Have a great night. Great to see you all here.